You're listening to the all-new Veterinary Podcast, The Vet Chat, with fellow vets and hosts, Matt Wells and Steve O'Leary. Join us as we speak to a wide variety of industry professionals about hot topics and subjects affecting animal health in New Zealand. Thanks for listening. Well, good day, everybody. Welcome along to another episode of The Vet Chat. Today we're going to talk lepto, and my guest today is Julie Collins-Emerson. I guess to a lot of people your name's probably familiar, they may not necessarily know you personally, but your name comes up on the top of all those complicated looking scientific papers I suppose, so you're probably known as the lepto lady to a lot of people, which um, would be a great superhero name, but um, we probably dig a little bit deeper into that for the purposes of this, just give a little bit more background. So your career's basically been lepto, hasn't it? A big chunk of it. Yes. You have a PhD in molecular genetics from Massey, which sounds pretty complicated stuff. About 30 years ago, you went into a postdoctoral position at the vet school with somebody that I guess our, our older listeners might remember, a guy by the name of Roger Marshall, who is one of the founders really of Lepto. Um, still a legend in the Lepto field, really, isn't he? And we might talk a little bit more about them. And you're also one of the founding members of the Lepto Research Group at Massey University. So I think that's probably where people recognise your name from. I should point out too, you're a scientist, not a vet. But you've got probably a, a really good grounding across all the different parts of Lepto, which makes it great to, to talk for this type of thing. I guess the thing about that research group, and we'll probably talk a little bit more about it later, but it does, it kind of goes right across. And, and as vets, we kind of have this very livestock-focused view of it. You know, that it's about what happens in, in cattle. And we see these studies that are in cattle and perhaps in sheep and deer and those types of things as well. But it's much bigger than that, isn't it? It's, it's in what you're doing, your work is in humans, it's about wildlife, it's the environment. There's all kinds of stuff involved in it. You know, we talk about One Health a wee bit, and I think that's probably a very, very good working example. Yeah, I think so, and it's very rewarding for us. And we've got in our group a variety of backgrounds and we're even now working with some social scientists where we're sort of working on that human and animal interaction, that sort of fringe area there, and which is stretching us a bit, but it's also very rewarding and giving us insights that we otherwise would not have had. Yeah, a lot of that social science stuff is fascinating, isn't it? When you start getting into it, just understanding why people do the things they do. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's, it's quite different. And yeah, just, I mean, you've obviously done some fascinating things. I mean, you worked with the World Bank, the Pasteur Institute, the World Health Organisation, so obviously you know, very, very well qualified to talk to it. Yeah, that part of it is really rewarding for us because we can see that some of the training that we're doing really has an impact, particularly in some of the uh, countries which have low incomes and you know their livelihoods as well as their health is really reliant on good information and training and so yeah, we all find that very rewarding. With Roger Marshall, that comment that the world is a sea of leptospires, which he famously said, and we're all just sort of waiting to come across it probably at some point almost, aren't we? So. Yes. Well, even in the time I've been here, it's changed from, I suppose, right back in its infancy. We're talking about two main species, and now we've got 64 species, and we keep climbing. Yeah, 64 species, but in New Zealand, what, the, no. the six? We have two species in New Zealand, Leptospirpetusai and Terrigans, but we've got different cerevars within those species. So we think there's six main ones that are circulating, or at least six cerevars, and we'll talk about one of the more interesting ones later on, I suppose. I think it's quite good just for context to kind of work your way through and just understand the whole background of Lepto and, and 
what's happened in New Zealand over time and, and how things change and keep evolving and, and I think that's actually quite important in the understanding of what's going on now. So yeah, probably, I guess we start and maybe take you back in time a wee bit to around about the pre-vaccination days I guess and you know, it's, it's good to sort of just for a bit of perspective think about like, how bad things actually were. Yeah, well I suppose I'll, I'll just start probably back in, I think it was 1951, when they first really identified Lepto in New Zealand, and that was on a, a dairy farm, and there was some calves that were sick with red water, and human cases at the same time, and they identified Pomona in there. And then the next year, I think it was about 76 farms up in Northland, had an outbreak of Lepto, and that's when it really started coming to the fore then. And from then on, it tended to be associated mainly with dairy industry and the pig industry, so it was you know, dairy farm fever or swine herds fever. And it continued on at reasonably high rates. New Zealand was in the unenviable position of having really quite high rates of leptospirosis in humans compared to other similar OECD countries. And that peaked, I think in 1971, we had about 875 cases and it remained quite high. And then in the very early 1980s, a vaccine, a bivalent vaccine, one for Pomona and Harjo was introduced to dairy and pig industries mainly and we suddenly saw this corresponding drop in human cases. It was really quite dramatic and it sort of hovered then from about oh, 180 to 200 for many years then till about the late 90s when it started creeping up again. So the introduction of vaccine there, well, although no one's ever proved it, the fact that there's a strong correlation, <laughs> we think that was a very effective measure for controlling lepto during that time. But there's also been lots of changes in New Zealand farming industry in that time as well. In the 70s or so, deer farming was introduced and initially there were very high profit margins, but when those margins started to fall, many of the deer farmers started converting to mixed species farming. And I think there's been other changes as well, but before where we thought that lepto was mainly in say dairy and pigs, subsequent work has shown that it's circulating in sheep now and yeah. beef cattle. Oh, heaps of sheep. Yes. It's yeah, yeah. very, very high levels in sheep actually. Yeah, so it's, it, the, the whole scenario has changed and I think that's probably one important message to take home is that it's a dynamic disease, nothing static here. And one of the funny things that I, I cast my memory back is when I first started that postdoc back in 91, I think it was, when I was first introducing myself to people in the school there, someone asked me what I was doing. I said I was going to be working on lepto and he looked at me sideways and said, lepto, what are you working on lepto for? We've solved it, we've got the vaccine. <laughs> Waste of time, so that was a little bit depressing. And I was somewhat um, amused seven years later when he came back and wanted to do a PhD in lepto with me. <laughs> <laughs> The story of it's, uh, it's full of all sorts of twists and turns and it's got sort of villains that you can't kill off and not exactly happy endings, that type of thing either, so make it quite a good Hollywood blockbuster. A Marvel I mean, comic. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's coming back uh, 800 odd cases a year and, and what we know now is that we massively underreport how many cases there are per year. So you know, the scale of the problem in those days, I mean it was more unusual to not get lepto than to get it mm. really, wasn't it? And some of that stuff, there's some, there's some really cool stories. I mean, I remember going to a conference and actually having the Rural Women's Network, perhaps, who came and spoke and talked about the impact that it had on communities. And that actually one of the big drivers for the start of vaccination was the Rural Women's Network, actually just saying, look, and, you know, and obviously 
these days there's a lot more lot more female farmers there but basically in those days it was our husbands and sons uh, we are bearing the brunt of everything because of what's happened to our husbands and sons and you know we want something done about it oh you're right they were just amazing people raised a lot of money in those days for the research and then again when was it 2005 I think it was when we just started seeing some more cases they had another round of fundraising so they've been fantastic supporters and you're right it, it's it, lepto is not just this disease that affects one person it has wide-ranging effects on families and communities for instance if a farmer can't farm anymore because they've got long-term illness and the family has to leave the district that can be all sorts of people out of the schools out of you know it, it, yeah quite uh, dramatic consequences sometimes. And you made a comment a little earlier about the OECD and that you know, New Zealand has very high levels for a relatively developed country. And the difference, I suppose, in New Zealand to a lot of other countries where, where levels of lepto are fairly high is that for us it's an occupationally acquired disease for the most part. You know, not, not exclusively, but for most people it's, it's something that you catch at work, whether you're a farmer, whether you're an AB tech, whether you're a, a vet, perhaps a meat worker. And that's where it's different, where most other countries is actually probably a recreationally acquired disease, where swimming in rivers and that type of thing is where most people get it in, in a lot of other countries, isn't it? Or, or just pick it up from rodents, say, in their environment, yeah. So yeah, it's a different sort of thing that we're dealing with, which means that, which I guess makes it all the more important that groups like, like your working group work on what happens in New Zealand. It's so different from everywhere else that we kind of have to sort of find our own way to do things, I guess. Yeah, it gives us certain advantages though because we're a, um, an isolated island. We have this island biogeography, all the lepto that we uh, see circulating in the animals primarily has come across in livestock or maybe some of the introduced animals like hedgehogs and a few rats, that sort of thing. So yeah, we've only got two native land mammals, which are bats. So it gives us a very different scenario to that which is typical overseas where you might find many different leptospiral strains circulating in the environment, which is also actually <laughs> makes it very difficult to diagnose the cerebar quite often because you've got multiple similar strains. And then that spills over into livestock and into people. So because we don't have some of those confounders with our experiments, I think we have the ability to shed light on the disease that people maybe in some other areas like mainland Europe don't, so that's another advantage to working in New Zealand. Yeah, true. I never really thought about it like that. It's a, an advantage as much as it is a disadvantage being yeah. isolated sometimes, isn't it? Mm. So, now, we, we've made the comment about that vaccination sort of, you know, almost made the problem go away for lack of a better way of looking at it. It didn't really. I mean, still 100, 200 cases a year is still pretty significant, but it did reduce the scale of the problem quite a lot. And then we saw that little sort of pickup that I think you sort of referred to a bit in the, around that late 90s, early 2000s sort of time, didn't we, yeah. where it started to sort of come away again. So, so what was behind that? I think it's just changes in farming practices, densities. When, whenever you've got humans interfacing with wildlife boundaries, putting pressures on it, or high densities of population and high densities in farming, you just change the, the dynamics. Also, we're seeing climate change. I'm just thinking there's been a hell of a lot of dairy herds which have been transported from the North Island down to the South Island. I mean, initially, Copenhagen Eye, which is generally the host maintenance for that, would be rats, used to be confined to the north part of the North Island. But over the years, we've seen it come down, and now it's in the South Island as well. So I think all these different changes that we see in climate, human behaviour, farming practices, all 
create the changes which drive changes in the epidemiology of leptospirosis and also the organism itself just evolving. Yeah, I mean, you, you make that comment about a dynamic disease. I mean, you could look at every one of the cerevars that we have, maybe with the exception of Balcanica, but who knows, we might be talking about that in, in a few years' time, doing something different as well. But they've all done something different over the last 50 or 60 years. They've all changed what they do to some extent. They've changed the animals that they're infecting. You know, we see Pomona getting into sheep. We see Hard Joe getting across more into sheep as well. We see Copenhagen changing its distribution. We see something that we'll talk about a bit later with Tarasovi just changing what it's doing quite a lot. Ballum turning up in more people. You know, all these things that just keep on happening. I mean, it's it's a really, yeah, it keeps you in business, I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> yes, um, you could be quite sarcastic about that, but it's not of our making. <laughs> and, and I think you're right. One of the very interesting things about Leptospira is if you compare, for instance, the Leptospira interrogans species, they've got a much larger genome and they have many more genes, I suppose, which would be used for environmental survival. What we were seeing generally with the Bulpetocyan, ones which include Harjo bovis, Balcanica, the possum variety, and Tarasovi, is that they're losing genes so that they're becoming more specialised to be living in association with the host species. So once again, this is that evolving of the organism and sometimes they'll be picking up genes from other bacteria in the environment or sometimes just from each other. For instance, they hypothesise that Hargeoprojipno has picked up its cell surface antigens genes directly from Hargeobobus, which is why serologically it's very hard to distinguish between the two yet they're completely different species. Yeah, there's some really interesting things that happen with lepto with the surface antigens versus what's actually going on inside the bacterium, which, are, which we might come back to a wee bit actually, because there's other examples of that I suppose, but, which probably quite nicely segues into what's happening now and that the increase in, in human cases that started happening in that last sort of 10, 15 years or so and sort of trying to understand what's happening this time because it's, in, it's a little bit different to what happened in the early 2000s, isn't it? Yes, I think so. Uh, well, I think what we have seen since probably the early 2000s is that there's a change in the prevalence of different cerevars. We're seeing more ballum and definitely more tarasovi, and we think there's a change also in, in the type of tarasovi we're seeing. Not only that, but also in the occupations that are primarily associated with some of these strains. So before, we used to think of it traditionally as being very focused on meat workers. Now I think the introduction of PPE and maybe changes in processes as well as good education programs has seen a drop in the number of meat workers which are getting the disease. It's still an issue, but it's not as bad as it used to be. Whereas primarily now, some of our researchers in the team like uh, Shah and Rico have been finding that dairy farmers and livestock workers are more often represented in lipto cases now than meat workers, the proportion of them that have it. And not only that, the cerevars that those different groups are more likely to have is different too. Meat workers are more likely to have Pomona and Harjo strains, whereas dairy farmers and livestock workers are more likely to be infected with, say, Ballum and Tarasovi. And presumably with the meat workers it's because they're dealing with a lot of unvaccinated animals, they're dealing with a lot of sheep and beef? I think that is the case, yes. Well sometimes, I think it's also important to highlight that some of the other work that the group has done years ago has demonstrated that it doesn't matter what vaccine brand you use, they're all efficacious. 
but sometimes the vaccination program is not as effective as it could be. For instance, we found that dairy calves, some of the young ones, were people waiting too late to vaccinate them and so by the time they vaccinated them they already had the infection and I know that there were concerns about maternal antibody interfering at an early age and so people delayed it but studies have shown that you can vaccinate them quite young now so hopefully people would consider vaccinating at three months or age or just before that and getting that booster and maybe again at maybe nine months time when they're sort of going into the normal routine of yearly vaccinations with the adults. And sometimes people just forget, you know, they have animals which have gone to run off or they've brought in a bull or there might be some pigs further up which <laughs> no one's uh, actually vaccinated. You've got dogs on the farm, dogs can also get lepto. So it's just being mindful of some of those other areas where lepto can creep in onto the farm. So we've mentioned Bellum and Tarasovae. We might save the, the best for last, shall we say, and talk Tarasovae in a moment. But Bellum, I mean, we're seeing dairy farmers get more Bellum. And one of the things that comes through, I guess, when you sort of dig into lepto is just the, the epidemiology of every one of them is just a little bit different, isn't it? There's something different that's going on with every single one of them. So Bellum, what's, what's happening with that? Why do we think dairy farmers are getting that? We're not entirely sure why they are getting it, but what we have found is that recent studies by one of our former PhD students, Marie Monet, has found a lot of carriage of bellum in mice. This is in a, the Manitou area and uh, a little bit over in the uh, Wairapa, some farms that we tested there, and very high carriage of bellum, and these are on the dairy farms, so we're thinking that the animals are just contaminating the environment, whether it's feed or mud or what have you, and if it's becoming more common in the mice, then it's maybe the cattle are just exposed more to it, and humans are getting it either directly from the cattle or from the environment, or both. So Bellum's got a few reservoir hosts, doesn't yes. it? It's, it's yeah. mice or black rat or uh, which other ones? Occasionally hedgehog and those sorts of things. But the study found that the high carriage tended to be in mice, but that doesn't preclude other yeah, wildlife species. Yeah, and didn't there was a horrendous number of mice per hectare. One of those sort of numbers that you just sort of go, I don't even believe that. It was like... 40 odd per hectare or something or more was it something like that? Huge number yeah feel sorry for the people in New South Wales eh? Yeah true true yeah I'm just actually it's that's a point like sometimes I look at all those mice running everywhere in New South Wales and think how much lepto was Well there? there was lepto was an issue there was a rise in leptocations there I was contacted by somebody yeah. The question is I think we sort of know the answer but it appears as though the, the way that dairy farmers or farmers in general or rural people in general I suppose get bellum is directly from the rodent urine more so than via the, the urine of the cattle or whatever livestock they've got on there. Well we're still finding cattle shedding bellum, not as in high nipples as some of the other cerebars, so that could still be a route of infection. So we can't rule it out? Yeah, we can't We can't rule it out, no, because some cattle were found through doing PCR of the urine to be shedding bellum, but we just know that there's a, a lot in the mice as well. And, and so maybe one of the things, you know, we talked a bit about changing dairy farming and or farming in general changing, I mean there's a lot more supplementary feed these days on a lot of dairy farms than there was, you know, 20, 30 years ago. So maybe that's one of the factors that you know, it's just probably with more supplementary feed, there's probably more rodents and more opportunities to be exposed to rodent urine. So, I mean, there could be all sorts of things going on. I mean, there's yeah, a lot, so. so lot to come probably. Rodent control very important. Well, and and so you know, if you're doing rodent control, you're helping control Copenhagen eye as well as Bellum. Yeah, that should work well either way. So yeah, moving on to Tarasovo because I know that that's probably what a lot of people you know as we said earlier might want to hear about, and it, it really. 
it popped up what 10 15 years ago something like that was it maybe not quite that long ago well maybe it was we didn't know at the time because we didn't have the diagnostic tools to deal with it but we had a small pilot study where a couple of Dutch students who were just over the summer went around sampling what were vaccinated dairy herds and doing some PCR on the urine and we were very surprised to find that they were positive for lepto and we said, oh my goodness, what's happening here? Have we got a breakdown of vaccine programs or what? And then in 2016, Uni Dupinana, a PhD student, started a large study where we looked at 200 dairy farms across New Zealand and sampled 20 cows in each and we sampled blood and urine. So we did the MAP serology on them and did PCR on the urine. Mm. So that was to match, if you found shedding, to match it with the antibodies, the lepto antibodies, exactly. so you could identify what the actual lepto that was being shed was. Exactly. Because we didn't know in that pilot study, did we, what no. the lepto being shed was? No, we didn't. And we had the technology then to go on and do the sequencing of a small section. We found one gene which is suitable, once we sequence it, to distinguish between the various strains in New Zealand. That's not necessarily suitable for worldwide, but it suits us in New Zealand. And that was fascinating because we found, I think there was about 94 cows that were shedding out of those 4,000. And I think of the 74 or so, or 75 sequences that were readable, 53 of them were a type of Tarasovi. But it was different to the typical Tarasovi. Tarasovi, but not as we know it. Yes, because, mm. and why we say Tarasovi is that overwhelmingly these animals had high teasers to Tarasovi. So the antibodies that we see are Tarasovi antibodies. Yes. But then the, then the plot thickens a little bit, I guess. So we've got these Tarasovi antigens, which are strongly correlated with shedding this novel, I should say, sequence of DNA. So we're thinking, well, what on earth is this? Now, there's a couple of possibilities here. It could be a Tarasovi, your sort of bog-standard Tarasovi, which has maybe just had a bit of a mutation and, and managed to pick up a different gene, swap out one gene for another. So it's mostly like Tarasovi with a coat, you know, antigen coat like Tarasovi. Or could it be something which has absorbed the DNA, the genes for the Tarasovi coat, but a very different leptospira. And that's what we don't actually know at the moment and what we're desperately trying to find out. So similar to what you described with hydroprojetno and hydrobobus earlier. Exactly, exactly. So we have strong confidence that what we're actually finding is in existence, and that's because we've got colleagues in New Caledonia which have also found the same thing. And what is interesting there is they've got virtually no dairy industry in New Caledonia, but they have got a lot of beef cattle. So they're finding it in their beef cattle. We also have found beef cattle with Tarasovi cerevar teeters, and we're sort of thinking, hmm, maybe they are also, we haven't done a study yet, but maybe they are also carrying this organism. The fact that Uni did the study in 2016, and we've gone back recently to relook at some of those herds and still find that those herds still have high teeters, a lot of them, to Tarasovi, tends to make us think that it's circulating in the stock there. It wasn't just a, one of these incidental infections. And whether or not you call it a maintenance host or a reservoir host, there's lots of uh, debate about that, but I think it probably indicates that the organism is reasonably well matched to the cattle as being a host. Yeah, and the other thing I suppose that sort of supports that is that we just don't see sick cattle. No, this. that's right. So whatever it is, it's evading the immune system, which is what the host adapted 
types of lepto do. They kind of evade the host immune system and they stay in the kidneys for a lot longer and they keep shedding for a lot longer. And they don't cause a lot of overt disease, but that's, that appears to be how that's behaving, which is quite different from the Tarasova that, that I learned about at vet school, which was a pig lepto, that if it jumped across into cattle, they would get sick. So different behaviour really entirely, isn't it? Exactly, and uh, another PhD student, Marina uh, Sokolova at the moment, is also analysing some of the production data just to see whether or not there is, even though the animals aren't obviously sick, whether there is some effect on production as well. So hopefully that will gain some information from that. Yeah, that's going to be really interesting. I was just thinking about your pilot study. Um, you know, we made a comment about a couple of European students coming over, and you, you probably don't even realise this, but actually the person that took the samples out of the Waikato was me. Oh! So <laughs> I actually so I just went out to a few of my dairy farms that I'd been to. I don't, I'd just come across into industry at the time, and so I just rang up a few of the old farmers that I knew in the region around Lawrenceville and went and visited them and during milking and, and just casually took some urine samples uh, you know, while I was there. And it's actually interesting, uh, for those that have taken urine samples off cattle when you're in the pit during a milking, there's probably no higher risk procedure for giving yourself lepto. There's urine splashing everywhere and you're trying to, and everything you're, you're told to get out of the way of, of a cow that's peeing in the shed, you're doing the opposite, you're going towards it. And you're sort of trying to, got this pottle hovering there and it's sort of splashing urine all over the place. And I remember thinking, this is a bit dicey, but uh, hey, I've vaccinated these so it's all sweet. And then getting a heck of a shock when, I come, when we saw the results come back that some of these actually had you know, live leptospires or, or had some had some fragments at least of leptospire DNA in that urine. So yeah, that's a little sort of personal part of that. Oh well, thank you for doing that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I I didn't get lepto in case anybody yeah. is worried. It's good. Yeah. <laughs> Not that I knew anyway. So yeah. I was just going to say what we're trying to do, and we've been trying quite quite some time now, is to actually culture this organism. It's proving to be extremely difficult in the same way as our colleagues in New Caledonia find they have no success at the moment. And what culturing would enable us to do is that we could do whole genome sequencing on it and then get a definitive answer as to just exactly what this organism is and how similar or dissimilar it is from our typical Tarasovi. It would also mean that we could do proper serological analysis on it, for instance, and see how it reacts with, say, the standard Tarasophy. Do they behave the same way? Because even if it was a very different organism, if it had exactly the same surface antigens or very similar in the same way as, say, Ictero and Copenhagenate have, we could still probably use a standard Tarasovi type vaccine strain to protect against it. So it's a very important piece of information that we need. Yeah, but it's it's very hard to culture, isn't it? I don't yeah. think we've successfully cultured it yet, uh, which is interesting because Tarasovi by itself is not particularly hard to culture. No, but that it, it may well be part of this shedding of the genes so that it's less adaptable now. It doesn't have that sort of repertoire of all these ancillary genes, I suppose, that enable it to live happily in the medium. Maybe it is more designed to be just transferred between animals directly rather than spending time in the environment. So that's our main challenge at the moment. The important thing for now, I guess we don't have any solutions to it. We don't have a vaccine. We don't have anything else that we can do. So what do we do? What are the vets listening, the people that are listening to this podcast? What do they do in the meantime about Tarasovo? I suppose about Lepto in general. What can we do? Well, I think don't be disheartened about vaccination. Please do continue to vaccinate your herds with uh, either the bivalent or trivalent one because they are effective. And just look at your vaccination program 
think about if there's any animals that might be missed in it and just try and make sure you've got good coverage. The other one is just hygiene. Washing your hands, trying to wear PPE, thinking about maybe some of your little kids or something that sometimes wander in the shed, make sure they've got shoes on, stay away from the spray, cover cuts. Don't walk under the effluent spreader when it's going. <laughs> I've heard that before too. I, yeah. I've never thought of that one actually. That's a really good point. Is, yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and aerosols, you know, be careful with the aerosols when you're washing down sheds, for instance. And I think if you have any suspicion that you've got flu-like symptoms, I think it's really important to discuss it with the doctor and say, well, could it be lepto? Raise that question with them. Because the sooner you get treated, I think with, say, antibiotics, the better your chances are. We're finding that roughly a third of the people who get lepto, or notified as getting lepto, I should say, because we know that there could be 20 times that number who aren't sort of being notified, end up with a, a long-term illness. You know, nine months later, they're still ill. And it's a bit like this sort of long COVID they're talking about in the news of late. We nearly got through without mentioning COVID too. Really. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. It's long-term fatigue. Like one guy was talking about, he said, he's having trouble counting his kids' pocket money. You know, and this is a couple of years later. So that has huge effects on people and their family life and once again communities and what have you. So it's better to be proactive about it and just question and just say, oh, have you looked at that? Could it be that? Yeah, so a lot of what you talk about, I mean, it's covered in things like Leptosure, of course, but it's what farmers did in pre-vaccination days. And there's a whole generation of farmers that don't know that now, of course, that, you know, when a cow pees, you get out of the way and all those things that you mentioned. So it's good just to be back reinforcing that. And it's interesting, you, you know, you make the comment about COVID there and, you know, the term herd immunity, Lepto is a great example of herd immunity actually working, isn't it? It comes from the animal health side, really, the herd immunity term, but with a really high vaccination rate, we've eliminated hard joe out of dairy herds in a lot of situations, haven't we? Pretty much so, and that's why we're vaccinating so much to, not so much to protect the animals, so that's part of it, but it's actually to protect the humans. So you're right, it's a wonderful example of one health, and it's not just the dairy cows, you know, think about sheep and, and beef cattle. I know that there's always people raise concerns about the cost of vaccinating those large you know, flocks or herds, but that's also where you get lepto from. There's not too many pigs on dairy farms these days anyway, I suppose, but just think of other animals and the fact that wildlife can bring it onto your property, so rodent control again. I mean, ideally, it'd be nice to see all the livestock vaccinated, but we've got a way to go yet, I think, in convincing people that, because they don't see the effects of it quite often. The animal might go off to work and they don't see the person that maybe gets sick from it, but if they realise that they can get it themselves from their animals, and that's what, just interviewing this other farmer who was a dairy farmer, he had no idea that he could get it from sheep. So I think also it's our challenge as scientists, as we've been discussing before, about finding different media for distributing information, making it available to people, and I think also people to realise that it's not a static disease and maybe just try and keep up with the information as it comes along and we try our best to distribute the information as well. Mm, yeah, never assume anything I suppose, you know, just treat every herd like it's got lepto is probably the takeaway message in some ways at the moment and, and regardless of whether we have a vaccine in the future or not, that's probably what we should do. Just thinking a, a little bit, of, and you know, this probably might be a bit off topic, but the fact that we've got so much vaccination coverage in our dairy herds do you think that's maybe part of why things like Tarasovo have popped up? I mean, there's obviously a bunch of kidneys sitting there just desperately wanting some lepto to jump into them. 
I mean, that's almost, you almost feel like that's potentially what's happened, that, that there's sort of this niche that is occupied, that we've cleared out that niche and something else is bound to kind of jump into it. Yeah, I, I think that's a really important point. No one's got the definitive answer to that, but it certainly has been discussed that once you start treating with vaccines for one, whether it opens up the door for another species or another strain of lepto, and yes, that is a possibility. But I wouldn't want that to dissuade people from using vaccines. Oh, absolutely not. No, no. I mean, it's, it's, just like, it's sort of a bit like a game of whack-a-mole, I suppose. You know, you just sort of, every time you get one, it's what I mean about the, the villains that you think you've killed and, you know, they're, they're back again sort of thing. So, and just, just as a final thought, so we're assuming that we've probably got a new Cerevar. Do you get to name it? Oh, well, that's a real tricky one, actually. It's not going to be um, Colin Zemus? Oh, name? definitely no, no, no. I think... In our lab, we just call it Pacifica. That's just because we know it's in the Pacific area. But there are uh, committees that decide how things are being named. And I will say that some of the really big pioneers have had Cerevar's or strains named after them, but we certainly wouldn't expect it to be named after any of us. But it'd be nice for it to have maybe a New Zealand theme, seeing we were doing a lot of work on it, but it won't be up to us. So if you see any literature which is talking about Tarasovi Pacifica, that's really just our sort of lab in-house name for it. But that's what we're talking about, this sort of new variant of Tarasovi that we're not quite pinned down what exactly it is. We think it's a bald Peterson eye, but it's different from our bog standard one, yeah. Well, I hope that's kind of given people a little bit more background. And one of the reasons for doing this was that, you know, obviously I go around and I go to different places when I'm um, within my job and you're the same, Julie, you talk to different groups. And one of the things that I guess you find is that there's, there's probably a bit of variable knowledge around these things, shall we say. So the more ways that we can kind of get that message out, the more people hear this and hopefully get a little bit out of it, if you can get one or two things out of it and just understand better. And if the, if the main takeaway is that just treating every herd like it has lepto is something that we have to do, then we'll probably achieve something just by doing that. So thank you, Julie. Oh, thank you very much. It's been very enjoyable. Thanks for listening to The Vet Chat with Matt Wells and Steve O'Ealy. This show is proudly supported by Verbeck. If you want to find out more, go to nz.verbeck.com forward slash podcast.